Thanks for joining us for this week's message. At First Baptist, we exist to love God, love people, and make disciples. We hope you find yourselves blessed, challenged, and encouraged by this week's message. And for more information, you can follow us on social media or visit us at fbcrockhill.org. Good morning, church family. I, I wish sometimes you could stand where I stand, see what I see. Third worship service this morning here at First Baptist, and it's just been a blessed, blessed day, baptism, and all three services, and people who love Jesus, and I'm excited that tonight we get to come together as one family for a worship time at 5 p.m., worship night, and encourage you to be here. We're going to sing praises to Jesus, and and you know, be, being in three services, it's great to get together as one family occasionally. We're going to do that tonight, and I'm going to preach about 10 or 15 minutes. I've already got somebody lined up to time me and make sure I don't go past that. So I hope you'll be here. But this morning, uh, we're continuing our series in Ezekiel, if you want to open your Bible there. And I've had several people ask me how my mom is doing, how baby James is doing. So just a, a quick update. Mom is adjusting to being in the, in the facility. Uh, you know, she's 86 and has a dementia. Now, she did have one really bad day this week when she tried to make all of us feel really guilty. Uh, that's that's just part of it, but she's doing doing well. And we appreciate your continued prayers for her. Our daughter-in-law sent us another video yesterday of baby James turning over again, not even two weeks old. He's turned over on his own several times, so that's a really encouraging sign physically. And uh, so keep praying, praying for God to keep doing the miracle that He's done uh, done there. And uh, Monisa did make it back from California this week. Brought with her. A California cold and passed it on to me. Just more bad stuff from the West Coast. <laughs> well, we've been reading in our Bible reading plan the book of Ezekiel, and he was the prophet, you'll remember, who had been deported or exiled to Babylon as a slave during the second deportation, and he was ministering to the Jewish people who had been taken captive to Babylon while Jeremiah at the same time was ministering to the Jews who were still in Jerusalem leading up to the destruction in just a few years of the city by the Babylonians when they burned the city to the ground and all of that. And there's a chapter, chapter 18, um, where he talks about what it looks like to be righteous. And I want to talk about a righteous lifestyle today. As, as followers of Jesus, what does it mean to live a righteous lifestyle? So, Ezekiel chapter 18, if you have your Bible. Let me, let me see your copy of God's Word, printed or electronic. Amen. Thank you for bringing His Word with you to worship. Many of you know that uh, I enjoy music from a variety of genres, and Brandy Carlisle is a very talented, gifted singer, songwriter. Her music crosses genres. She's won nine Grammys in her career. What you may not know is that Brandy Carlisle was raised in a very conservative Bible-teaching church. When she was a teenager, she wanted to be baptized. The problem was that she had already come out as gay and was living that lifestyle. In talking with her, they explained that if you're going to be baptized and follow Jesus, you have to be committed to what Scripture teaches about sexual ethics and you would have to commit to not living a gay lifestyle if you're going to follow Jesus. And unless you were willing to do that, they would not baptize her. They couldn't. 
And she was offended by that. That became the moment when she turned her back on the church. And what she proceeded to do was to create her own belief system, her own faith system, her own religion, her own God, if you will, that agrees with her. And today, if you were to talk to her, she's, she's talked about this in interviews, she considers herself to be a spiritual person, a person of strong faith. And yet she's living her lifestyle as in disobedience to what God teaches in his word. And you remember a few weeks ago I threw out that big word syncretism? You remember that word? Please, somebody tell me you remember that word syncretism. Which is a mixing or a blending of different ideas, different philosophies, different value systems, different religions. You take some of what you like over here, some of what you like over there. You take a little Christianity, a little Buddhism, on and on, and you mix it, put it in a pot like a stew, and you create what you like. And that's very popular, very common in our culture today. That's exactly what Brandy Carlisle did created her own belief system but what about for you and me who say we are followers of Jesus we're disciples of Jesus what does a righteous lifestyle look like in Ephesians we are told to walk or live in a manner that is worthy of our calling in Christ what does that look like Ezekiel 18 can help us understand some of what that looks like. There's other places in the Bible that talk about it, but Ezekiel 18 gives us some insight. So that's where we're going to start this morning. And the first thing I want you to see is that whatever you decide, whatever choice you make when it comes to lifestyle, your lifestyle choice has consequences. Let's read together in Ezekiel 18 starting at verse verse uh, 1 chapter 18 verse 1 then the word of the Lord came to me came to Ezekiel the prophet and here's what God said to him what do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel concerning your homeland that is now controlled by the Babylonians while you are enslaved here in Babylon here's this proverb what do you mean by it? the fathers eat the sour grapes but the children's teeth are set on edge. We'll come back to that proverb in a minute. God speaks in verse 3 and says, As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. Behold, God says, All souls are mine. And when you and I think of the word souls, what comes to mind is our soul and then our body. The separate, separate our soul, our body. But this Hebrew word means the totality of who you are. It's like when people die in a plane crash, they'll talk about how many souls were lost, how many lives were lost, how many people died. That's what this word means. So it's, he's, And I think the NIV translates it something like that. So it's this idea of all souls, all people, every life are mine, God says. The soul or the life of the Father, as well as the soul or the life of the Son, is mine. And the soul or the life who sins will die. Now the Bible teaches that all of us die physically because we have sinned. The Bible teaches that all of us are spiritually dead because we have all sinned. 
why we must be born again and come to life spiritually through Jesus. But he's also here speaking to the nation of Israel and to these Jewish people and saying, when you do what is wrong, when you violate my law, there are consequences. And he goes on in the chapter to explain that some laws in Israel resulted in execution. And that if you choose a sinful lifestyle, it brings about destruction. The very fact that they had been deported as exiles to Babylon, the very fact that their homeland, Israel, was a conquered nation, and that in three or four years, Jerusalem would be burned to the ground and the temple destroyed by the Babylonians was because of their sin. God was disciplining them, judging them, and punishing them for their sins. Jeremiah makes that point. Ezekiel makes that point. The books of Kings and Chronicles make that point. There was a young husband, a young father, a young businessman. One evening called his pastor and said, I need to talk with you. So they agreed, they arranged to meet for breakfast the following morning. And this young husband explained to his pastor that on a recent business trip, he had gone down to the hotel bar one evening and lingered too long drinking with a female co-worker. They ended up spending the night together. He wanted to know what he should do now, what, what's next. The pastor took a deep breath and had all these thoughts run through his mind. What am I going to say to this young dad, this young husband? And then it, it became clear to him that he needed to help him deal with sin biblically. Deal with it God's way. And so he asked a series of questions to help the man think about and move toward a biblical response to his unfaithfulness. So he asked him, have you confessed your sin to God and asked him to forgive you? Young man didn't say anything. The pastor said, have you confessed to the young woman you spent the night with that it was a sin and this will never happen again? Have you confessed to your wife your unfaithfulness and asked her forgiveness? And if you're not ready to do any of that, have you at least been tested for AIDS and STDs because you're putting your wife at risk until you are? This young man didn't say anything, but he quietly and slowly pushed his plate away from him on the table and leaned back in his seat. And he said to the pastor, I came here for grace, not discipline. You disappoint me, pastor. There are people who don't want to deal with reality, with truth, and face their sins. The problem is you don't move beyond it without facing it. You don't heal from it by lying about it and covering it up. That's not God's way. That's not the biblical way. It has to be dealt with. He wanted an easy way out. 
Can't I just confess to God that it'd be okay and I don't have to do anything else? But what if a pastor had said to him, all you need to do is confess it to God and that's it. He would have started that young man down a path of bad habits of thinking sin is not that big a deal. I can sin on Saturday night, do my hell Mary to God and ask forgiveness and it's okay. Life doesn't work that way. Does God forgive? Yes. But sin has consequences. And too many of us in the culture, too many of us who go to church, too many of us who say we're spiritual or we're Christian want to act like sin, a sinful lifestyle is no big deal. When in reality, it is a big deal. This pastor did not want this young man to begin living a pattern of sin and cover-up that would have been disastrous in the long run. So that was a problem for the exiles in Babylon, the Jews that Ezekiel was preaching to. They wanted to blame mom and dad. They wanted to blame their parents and grandparents and their ancestors for the mess they were in as captives over in Babylon. It was their fault. They're the ones who sinned, not us. And so that proverb in verse 3, the fathers eat the grapes, the sour grapes, but it's the children's teeth that are set on edge. Now, we don't use that, but 25, 2,600 years ago, the Jews did. Now, Monisa and I both like grapes. But I like those sweet red ones. She likes those tangy green ones. Yeah, I don't get it. This proverb is the dad eats these sour grapes. But it's the children who taste it. Yeah, it's a way of saying, Dad, you're to blame. They were in denial about their own sin. Now, it is true that their parents and grandparents, that generations have been sinning against God, that generations of Jews had refused to listen to the prophets that had come before. They would still go to Jerusalem and worship in the temple and bring their sacrifices. And then they would go to these shrines all over the nation and worship the, the pagan gods and idols of the nations around them. And they were practicing, what's that big word? Syncretism. A mixing and a blending. Some Judaism, some Baalism, mixing and blending, and we do it in America today. And some of you who are sitting in God's house this morning do the same thing in your own life. And yes, their parents have been doing it. God sent the prophets. They ignored the prophets. But guess what? The generation living when Babylon conquered Jerusalem, the generation that had been taken into exile in Babylon had done the very same thing. But it was so easy for them to see the sins of their ancestors while ignoring their own sin. Their own culpability, if you will. And God doesn't let us by with that. 
And that leads to the second point. Our lifestyle choices have consequences, but secondly, you and I individually, we are responsible for the lifestyle we choose. The end of verse 4, the soul, the life, the person who sins will die. That's repeated eight times in one form or another, eight times in this one chapter. Let me illustrate this for you. Do a little history test. Uh, I can hear some of you moaning now. History. How, how many people, you know, the only people that have walked on the moon are Americans. How many Americans have walked on the moon? Shout out your answer. What number? How many Americans have walked on the moon? How many? Twelve. Who was the first one? Neil Armstrong, 1969. Who was the last one? Who was number 12? The last one to step off the moon back into the spaceship and come back home. So you don't become famous for being last, do you? <laughs> Eugene Cernan. I didn't know who it was until I looked it up this week myself. The footprints that those 12 men made on the moon, how long will those footprints be there? Do you know? We don't know. Likely millions and millions and millions of years, if not until the day that God destroys the universe and remakes it. Because you see, on the moon, you don't have wind and water erosion as we have on Earth. You do have, uh, oh, what's those, uh, those uh, that radiation and so on that comes from the moon, solar, I forget the name of it now, but you, you do have some solar, it's some kind of waves, but it's so minor and so slow that it would take millions of years before that did anything. So if you were to go to the moon today, Neil Armstrong's footprints would still be there. And they'll be there millions of years from now. Every parent in this room, every grandparent in this room, you are leaving footprints for your children and grandchildren to see. You leave a legacy. And maybe your lifestyle walks in a righteous and godly direction. Maybe your footprints are in an ungodly and unrighteous direction. But you're leaving them there for your children and grandchildren to see. And if they choose to follow. But your children will choose the path they walk. They will leave their own footprints. They may choose to follow yours, whether they're good or bad. They may choose to ignore yours and sit out on their own course. Every person, every child makes their own footprints in life, chooses the path they are going to follow. But here's the thing. They are responsible for the path they take, and God holds every individual accountable and responsible for the path 
they choose, the lifestyle they choose. You can't pass it. Hey, young people, teenagers, listen to me. You can't pass it off to your mom and dad. Do they have influence in your life? Absolutely. But God's going to look you square in the eye, teenager, and ask you, you chose that? Then you're responsible and accountable to me, to me, God says, for that choice. You answer to God for your lifestyle choice. And he goes on in this chapter to give examples of that, starting in verse 10. He said, there's a righteous man. There's this man, he chooses to follow God. He leaves a righteous path. God blesses him. He has a son. And his son chooses to not follow in his daddy's footsteps. His son chooses to become unrighteous, to live a wicked life. He says, the son will be punished for his choices. The dad won't. The dad will be blessed for his choices. And neither will the son be rewarded for what the dad did. The son will be held accountable for what the son does. Then starting in verse 14, he says that son who had a righteous father but chose to be unrighteous himself, grows up, gets married, has his own kid. And his child, the grandson, if you will, of the first man, the righteous man, the grandson says, I don't want to be like my daddy. I want to be like my grandfather. And he walks in a righteous path. The Bible says God will bless that grandchild. He will not be punished for his daddy's sin, but neither will his daddy be rewarded for his righteousness. Each one is responsible for his or her lifestyle choice. We have influence. We blaze a trail and say, here's the way to go. But each person chooses, and each person answers to God for the choice. He summarizes it in verse 20 of chapter 18 when he said, the person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. So our lifestyle choice has consequences, and we're each responsible for the lifestyle we choose. Now here's the last thing. If you choose as a disciple, as a follower of Jesus, to live a righteous lifestyle, what does that look like? Two things in this chapter. It will show up, it will show itself, it will be evident two ways. One, how you treat God. How you treat God. In chapter 18, verse 5, But if a man is righteous and practices justice and righteousness, verse 6, and does not eat at the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. Remember, syncretism. The Jewish people had been worshiping God along with all these other idols and religions, creating their own stew of religion, and God condemned it. He said the righteous man doesn't do that. 
The righteous man, the righteous disciple of Jesus doesn't pick and choose what he likes about Jesus and doesn't like about Jesus. Doesn't pick and choose what he likes about the Word of God and what he doesn't like the, about the Word of God. What, what he will obey of Scripture and what he will ignore of Scripture. The righteous man doesn't do that. In fact, in verse 9, the righteous man walks in my, in God's statutes and ordinances. In other words, we choose to obey God. We choose to obey God in his word. There was a man named Christian Herter who in the 1950s was governor of the state of Massachusetts. He was running for re-election for a second term and he was out one day on the campaign trail, a lot of different events, and one of the events happened to be late in the afternoon. It was a barbecue. He missed lunch. He was really hungry. And so the governor, campaigning for a second term, going through the line with his plate, holds it out, and the woman there to, with the chicken, she, she gives him one piece of chicken. And he's hungry. And he very politely asks if he could have another piece of chicken, and the woman says, I'm sorry, I'm supposed to give one piece of chicken to each person. And he said, but I'm starved. And she said, oh, I'm so sorry, but it's only one piece of chicken per person. And he normally wouldn't do this, but on that occasion, he was so hungry, he did said, he said, do you know who I am? I'm the governor of this state. And she said, do you know who I am? I'm the lady in charge of the chicken. It's one piece. Move on. <laughs> so there may be times... You don't like what God says. But righteousness is submitting to what he says and obeying what he says. Not pick and choose so that you create in your own mind a God who always agrees with you because a God who always agrees with you is not God. He's a figment of your imagination. A righteous lifestyle of a disciple says, I'm going to treat God right. Secondly, our righteous living as disciples shows up not just in how we treat God, but it shows up in how we treat other people. At the end of verse 6, the righteous man does not defile his neighbor's wife, talking about sexual ethics and adultery and all of that. Biblically, when, you know, biblically, unfaithfulness affairs means you're stealing what belongs to someone else. Because in Scripture, when a man and a woman become husband and wife, they become one flesh, they belong to each other. And when you cheat, you're actually stealing what God has pledged to someone else, what, what has been made one in the eyes of God. You're taking from someone else. Just one of many reasons it's a sin. As a Christian, your body is the temple of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, and sexual impurity means that you are sinning against the temple of God. What does a righteous lifestyle look like? You don't steal from others. Not just money, but you don't steal their wife or their husband. You, there's, it's, it's. Verse 7. If a man does not oppress anyone, 
but restores to the debtor his pledge and does not commit robbery. You loan something to someone and you have collateral that belongs to them and you hold it until they pay you back. Once they pay you back, you give them the collateral. You don't hold on to it. You don't steal from them. You don't take advantage of them. You don't abuse them. He says at the end of verse 7, does not commit robbery, but gives his bread to the hungry and covers the naked with clothing, caring about the, the disadvantaged and the poor and those who are on hard, hard times. Not closing your eyes to it. Verse 8, does not lend money on interest or take increase if he keeps his take increase it's the idea of exorbitant interest you know like most credit cards that that if interest accrues they, they can never get out of debt um the end of verse 8 executes true justice between man and man you can't read the Bible. You cannot read the Old Testament prophets without coming across that word justice over and over and over. And I know that term has been politicized, but brothers and sisters, you need to hear God says he cares and he sees how those who don't have power are treated. Well, let's just get real for a minute. We all know that who we know matters. I have been blessed many times in my life because of my position and because of relationships I have and people who care about me, connections and relationships, and most of us have been, right? There have been times we have been helped because of connections. That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. But there are people in our society who don't have much of that. They don't, they, don't have, they don't have the mayor's number in their phone. They don't, they don't have the, the sheriff's number in their phone. They don't have the connections. They can't pull any strings. And a just society cares about them. Meaning that followers of Jesus take note and care as well and don't simply turn a blind eye that's righteousness how we treat people and it matters yesterday in Jacksonville Florida a young 20 some year old white man walks into a dollar general store with a, an assault rifle and a handgun and he executes he murders three African Americans He's published more than one manifesto declaring his hatred of blacks. On his gun, there was a swastika. What you may not have read yet, that was before the shooting, he went to what is an historically black university in that community, a historically black neighborhood, and he's stopped by a security guard who asked for identity. He gets in his car, drives a short distance to that Dollar General store in that predominantly black neighborhood and kills three black people because his heart is filled with hate. Now, you don't have to 
use a gun to kill somebody. You can do it with your words. You can do it with your attitude. You can do it with your look and your expressions. You can do it with your decisions. You can do it with your lifestyle. We can do it in any number of ways. And our Lord takes note. Now, you and I who are followers of Jesus, we are not righteous in going to heaven because of how we live. Our righteousness is tainted by sin. We are righteous, we are right with God, and we are going to heaven because of our relationship with Jesus. When you receive Jesus into your life, he imputes to you, he gives to you his righteousness. That's what, that's what happens when you're forgiven and your sins are washed away and you are made holy. You are purified, declared righteous before God. But listen to me. The, the, when the righteousness, when the righteousness of Jesus fills me and it fills you, it oozes out of us and shows up in how we live and how we treat people. You cannot be filled with the righteousness of God and be filled with hate. You cannot be filled with the righteousness of God and be filled with prejudice and bigotry. You cannot be filled with the righteousness of Jesus and have a hard heart that doesn't care about people who don't have the connections you or I have. You cannot be filled with the righteousness of Jesus Christ and want to mix Christianity with Buddhism and Nietzsche and any other philosophy you come up with. Because when you're filled with the righteousness of Jesus, you're filled with Jesus, and that means you're going to look and live like him. Perfectly no. But the longer you follow him, the more you resemble him. And you should be growing. I want to say to you, if your attitude today is exactly what it was 20 years ago, you're not growing. Something's wrong. I'm 65. If God permits me to live to 75, I pray to God I'm not the same man at 75 I am at 65, that I'm still growing, that until there's no longer breath in my body, I'm growing more and more to be like my Lord. And that's what I pray for you. Because you want to know what righteousness looks like as a follower of Jesus? You keep growing, you keep changing, and you become more and more like him as he produces in you increasingly the fruit of the Spirit. So, here's the question. What does your lifestyle say about you? What does your attitude say about you? Are you accepting responsibility for your lifestyle or are you blaming everybody else? Are there things that need to change? 